This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new or recent films and compares them to films from days gone by. I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm a culture writer for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, and I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're doing something a little bit different. We were inspired by a recent list of some of the best actors of the 2000s, of the past couple of decades, and uh, we were inspired to try and pick some of our favorite actors who aren't on that list. And uh, of course, uh, you know, a list can only have so many names, so we thought we'd add to it, and we'll start diving into some of our favorite on-screen faces and talents right after this. So this is going to be fun, Stephen. We are looking at a, a number of actors that we think are prominent, uh, that really, uh, my, my uh, criteria are actors that always make a movie better when they show up. And we were inspired by an article in the New York Times called Greatest Actors of the 21st Century So Far by Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott, their, uh, their most prominent film critics. And their list is 25 uh, actors long, and I'm just going to provide it here quickly so people know what we're the actors we're not going to talk about because, but we, you know, certainly their list is is distinguished, it's diverse and fascinating. They mention some actors whose work I don't even know that well, so I'm curious to check them out. But it's the kind of list that is just there to, I think, inspire conversation and discussion and debate, which uh, I think um, most lists are. Let's face it, uh, we have our own list that uh, we will provide. Um, anyway, here's the original. Their list, numbered from 25 to 1, Gail Garcia Bernal, Sonia Braga, Marshala Ali, Melissa McCarthy, Catherine Deneuve, Rob Morgan, Wes Studi, Willem Dafoe, Alfre Woodard, Kim Min-hee, excuse me, Michael B. Jordan, Oscar Isaac, Tilda Swinton, Joaquin Phoenix, Julianne Moore, Shursa Ronan, Viola Davis, Zhao Tao, Tony Servillo, Song Kang-ho, Nicole Kidman, Keanu Reeves, Daniel Day-Lewis, Isabel Huppert, and Denzel Washington. I mean, how do you even pick? That is a great list. I mean, I so I assembled the list myself to try to find at least three that I could add to their list, and my list is longer than theirs. But a couple of people, uh, or a couple, a few, a few of the names I thought of: Javier Bardem, Maggie Gyllenhaal, John Hawks, uh, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Jeffrey Wright, Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, Elliot Page, Marion Cotillard, Kelly McDonald, Laura Linney, Michael Shannon, Tom Hardy, Bill Nighy, Francis McDormand, Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's hard to find. I mean, these are, are super talents, and uh, I think our lives as cineasts are just better for their work. Uh, and that's what we're doing today. We're celebrating their work. And so anyway, so you chose three, Stephen. I chose three, and we're going to talk about some of their films. And one of the uh, ones on your list, do you, would you like to start? 
Yeah, it's hard to believe Francis McDormand wasn't on that list. I know. I mean, among all those other ones, I mean, Michael Shannon has been fantastic, um, and and there's there's lots of actors who I think are uh, are established but are still proving themselves. Uh, you know, I was trying to think of names like Lupita Nyong'o came up, but I, I think she still you know is uh, has has some great films ahead of her. Um, well, we could have made a list of of like up and coming actors true, of the twenty first. Yeah, that's century. not what this is about. No, no. I mean, you know, they they certainly have some young actors on their list, like Sher Saron. But yes. but you know these are actors who are Oscar nominated already, if not Oscar winning. Um, anyway, so there it is. It's it's a it's a completely subjective list. But uh, but you uh, you you mentioned Kate Blanchett, who I think is or Blanchett, I think is a, is a terrific choice. I think it's Blanchett. Is it Blanchett? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it pronounced different ways. So yes, yes. I had the same debate about the director of one of her films, uh, which I watched, which is uh, Heaven or Paradise, which is Tom uh, Tickver. Tom Tickver, which is it Tykver? Is it Tykver? You know, and eventually I heard somebody actually say it in a in an extra on a DVD, and it's Tickver. So there you go. Yeah, this, Ger- he's German. I think that's a German. He's pronunciation. definitely German. Yes, uh, you know, making a film in Italy with an all English speaking cast. But um, yeah, Kate Blanchett came to mind immediately you know of course it was you know every time i think of an actor i have to go back to that list oh no they're on it you know oscar isaac or who <laughs> whoever so right um i was like who really lights up a screen for me in, in a way that even if the film isn't isn't amazing um always brings their a game it has the you know the 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 trained chops because i think all the actors that we chose have some serious stage background um as well as their on-screen credits, uh, pretty much uh, to a fault. So, and and Kate Blanchett is just somebody I just uh, I just love her work in so many different kinds of films. Uh, I I first saw her in Oscar and Lucinda, uh, the Gillian Armstrong film from 1997 with uh, Ray Fiennes, where she plays an heiress who befriends a um, very um, uh, obsessed priest who wants to build a cathedral of glass in the remote Australian outback. Uh, so basically, a you know, a, a, a fool's mission, basically a Fitzcarraldo kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just, uh, I kind of fell for her right there. She was so wonderful in this film and brought so much energy and character and life. And then a year later, she's playing Queen, you know, then she was kind of an unknown. A year later, she's playing Queen Elizabeth the first in Elizabeth, um, which she would go on to do again. in uh, I think the golden age. Um, but, uh, so so I was I was kind of with her from the get-go and, and she was just continued to be interesting and kind of mysterious but soulful and real uh, and things like uh, the talented Mr. Ripley uh, an overlooked film that I'm really fond of The Gift directed by Sam Raimi where she plays kind of a medium uh, and you know I've never seen her not be great and of course in things like Carol um, and, and even Hannah the kind of uh, sort of dystopian action flick about us oh that's so good hannah is so much yeah so good it's her 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 teeth uh obsession (laughs) (laughs) jeez but but yeah but what i you know i thought well let's use this show as an opportunity to to look at some films that i haven't seen because she still has a pretty you know she's been working pretty steady on film and on on stage and i thought well this would be a good chance to catch up with some films of hers uh that I have not seen. And that's what I decided to do. And uh, I think my main pick is a, is an interesting film called little fish from 2005. It's an Australian drama. Uh, and uh, I guess they're required by law to have Sam Neill and Hugo weaving in it in supporting roles. <laughs> and, uh, and Noni Hazelhurst, who is a well-known Australian actor who probably not terribly well-known in North America, but uh, you know, has done a lot of TV and a lot of films. She plays uh, her kind of long suffering mother. And basically Kate Blanchett, um, 
plays a character who uh, she's, she, you know, she's got a past. She's she's got this kind of troubled past. She's had a history of of drug use and hanging out with a bad crowd. And uh, essentially, her character Tracy has, has is trying to get back on the right path. She's been clean for a while. A lot of her bad influences have been out of her life, and she's trying to start up her own business. But of course, she has no credit record. She can't get a loan. She's trying to start up a, basically an internet and gaming cafe, which tells you how old this movie is. It's from 2005. So she's working in a video store and trying to open up an internet cafe. So, you know, maybe maybe in the run of things, it was just as well that she, she didn't come through with that dream. But, uh, you know, you have to look back to, to what was going on in, in 2005. And but she has a bunch of bad influences all around her, basically. Even her mother had, has had to deal with some uh, addiction issues. But uh, Hugo Weaving plays uh, a, a former Aussie football legend who's now an addict and is you know, basically selling off chunks of his career in memento form and, and trying to get by. You know, And she's trying to keep him afloat. Her brother is a drug dealer who's uh, also uh, missing a leg from a car accident that she was involved in years before. And then... Uh, Johnny, this um, Australian uh, Vietnamese young man, uh, comes back into her life after supposedly fleeing Australia to try and get straight and go into the business realm in Vancouver. So, you know, she's she's trying to move ahead. And yet all these forces are, are pulling her back. And it's it's just a, a great performance. She's she's uh, she's a really strong character. You know, she's she's being pulled from all sides and uh, she has a hard time making all these choices as to what's you know what's going to help her life get better without leaving the people that she loves in the dust even though they're all kind of the authors of their own fate as it will and the, and the whole film is you know there's a sense of a tragedy waiting to happen and it's it's all kind of filtered through her eyes and and she's wonderful in this film it is it's it is a bit of a downer i guess that you know the film is just one setback after another uh so it's you know you you wanted to triumph and she's and in a way she she does but it's it's maybe not the the triumph she's looking for so uh again it's 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 an overlooked film uh uh Jacqueline Persky who wrote it uh created a really fun Australian series called um Spirited uh about a woman being haunted by the ghost of a rock star that's on Amazon which I recommend uh so she's gone on to bigger and better things as well but um but uh, for fine performances Sam Neill plays basically the the drug lord who's trying to stay in the background and, and Sam Neill is always great. And Hugo Weaving is just heartbreaking as the footballer who's uh, who's seen better days. So uh, yeah, really, really fine film that um, maybe not a perfect film, but Kate makes it great. Yeah. I, I liked it a lot too. And, and you're right. It's not a perfect film, but it is beautifully shot though. It's certainly low budget, but does a lot with uh, mood and texture. Um, and Kate Blanchett, character Tracy really it's a, her arc is that she finds personal strength and even though her dreams may not come true she does find strength within herself and that is what's very clear at the end when she is kind of the author of her own salvation um, and she's really good in this she has that sort of like physical slumped shouldered look uh, that is uh, you know she you can tell that she's got this wired energy that she's just kind of holding back and, uh, and the other actors are really awesome as well. I would say this is kind of, although Blanchett is the lead character here, uh, with Hugo Weaving, it's, his, his role is incredible. He's so good in this. It might be my favorite Hugo Weaving role. Wow. He's got kind of a 
Daniel Day-Lewis style metamorphosis here that I've never really seen from him before. I thought he was really good. Um, but yeah, it's a, um, it's, it's, it is a, a difficult watch in places, but I, I like Little Fish a lot. I think it's a good choice, Stephen. My thumbs up for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe you also approved my other Cate Blanchett choices, uh, which was Heaven. Uh, directed by the aforementioned Tom Tickver and uh, based on a, a script uh, by Krzysztof Kieslowski uh, from an unrealized trilogy. He was going to follow up uh, Red, Blue and White with Heaven, Hell and Purgatory. Uh, those films eventually did get made by other filmmakers. And I believe that uh, this was the first one of, of the three um, by three different filmmakers. And Tom Tickver is a great uh, director for this for this film, where basically Cate Blanchett um, takes it upon herself she's a teacher english teacher working in italy she takes it upon herself to um to leave a bomb in the office of a prominent businessman who also happens to be uh the head of a local drug ring that uh is responsible for the death of her husband indirectly died from an overdose and uh you know she's seeing his influence leak into the lives of her students and she just decides that she's had enough and she's going to take the law in her own hands and take responsibility for it but through a series of misadventures the bomb doesn't get its intended target and um now she's feeling guilty about it and uh she she finds an unlikely ally in giovanni ribisi's filippo who is the translator uh who is you know inter the uh in, in, translating for her and the police and uh so you know they go on the run together it, and it's but it's it's a kind of a basic story but there's a lot of philosophical underpinning to it as a kind of find redemption um from this crime and it's uh yeah it's very you know it's a very kislowski kind of idea but tom tipker uh gives it a lot of visual panache without um without resorting to kind of run lola run theatrics if you will it's, <laughs> it's a very straightforward film and blanchett is a wonderful performance as this woman who is laden with guilt over trying to do what she thought was the right thing yeah, I think uh, Heaven is a wonderful film. If you want, if it's hard for me to point at a favorite Blanchett performance, but Heaven might be it. It's certainly my favorite film that she's in. It's it's a fable. It's a love story. It's kind of about the redemptive power of love. It's very optimistic in a weird way, given how dark the material is. I really loved Heaven, and it's it's underseen. It's not one that people talk about, but it is a wonderful film. And and I'm a longtime Kieslowski fan, so so that helps. Uh, I was really glad to see that it uh, it got made from his script so uh uh yeah so now, you know yeah, we can go on and on but we have to move along we've got yes five more actors <laughs> to talk about yeah yeah so my one of my picks is chiwetel ejiofor he's the uh he's he's the actor the british actor born in london he's 43 his parents were nigerian in fact uh, his first big break in hollywood was working for steven spielberg and amistad and since then he's been in a lot of big movies, lots of indies, but he's also kept working in the theater. Uh, he's an incredible presence on screen. He does more with his eyes than the average actor does with their whole body. I find, it's funny, It's I, I find him just, every time he shows up, it's like, oh, I'm so glad to see Chiwetel Ejiofor because he's such a warm presence. Uh, now, the film that I think I first really noticed him in was Dirty Pretty Things, and that's... Uh, that's a Stephen Frears picture. It's written by Stephen Knight, who is a, a long, he's a director and writes a lot of thrillers in British film and television. Um, and for Doctor Strange fans, this is where Benedict Wong and Chiwetel Ejiofor first worked together. Uh, it's a terrific thriller. It's set in London's illegal immigrant and refugee community. Ejiofor plays Okewi, who is, uh, or I should say Okwe, 
who is a uh, he's a doctor, but he drives a cab during the day and he works as a concierge in in a hotel at night. He's taking a stimulant in order to keep himself awake and try to make enough money for for what we don't know why. Um, but uh, we find out he he sleeps on the couch of a woman he knows, a Turkish woman uh, played by Audrey Tautu, and uh, he does a lot of shift work. But they are harassed by the immigration cops, and it turns out that this is not just about their efforts to try to make a go of it in London, but it's there's a mystery here, and uh, and it's pretty dark. It's he discovers a human heart in the toilet of one of the rooms in the hotel, and we discover that there is a an organ harvesting. Uh, you know, uh, uh, operation going on, and it's uh, this is intense stuff. It's it's the stuff of nightmares, but it's sadly plausible as well. Um, it's a wonderful film, though, in in his performance, um, and in just a, a look at a community that we don't usually see on film, which is an immigrant community in uh, you know one of the world's big cities. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's uh, you get a real sense of London and of its back corners and its little cafes and it's uh, and it's uh, the the texture of the film is really something special. So yeah, I, I don't know. Have you seen the film, Stephen? I have seen it. I didn't rewatch it for this episode, but I have seen it within the past year or so. And it's amazing how well it stands up for uh, you know almost twenty years later. This is from two thousand two, and and uh, you know the the crisis of of immigrants trying to get settled. Um, in new countries is is still ever present, of course, and and the lives of these people uh, just feels just as urgent and just as um, just as present now as as it did when the film came out. I think I first saw Edgio Four in uh, probably Amistad. It was probably the first time I kind of noticed him, and he's also terrific in Children of Men. Um, but but this is a starring role. I mean, this is you know he's he's the lead character here um, between him and Audrey Tattoo, who could also have made my list because she's been so wonderful in so many things since Amelie came out. Um, and I, you're right, the, the, that kind of back corner, back hallway, um, uh, you know, kind of under the fingernails look at life in modern Britain that this film provides is is, is pretty eye-opening. And, the, and the, the thriller aspect of the film doesn't really let up. It's, it's, it's a completely gripping movie. And I think uh, because of Edgio 4 is very, very real performance, I think is a big part of why this film works so well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think part of the reason I like him as well is he chooses a lot of science fiction. He was in uh, Z for Zachariah, which is a film I, I really recommend, a, a science fiction uh, a post-apocalyptic picture with Margot Robbie and Chris Pine. Which um, I did watch. He's so. in, oh yes, yes, good. And you liked it. And eh? I did like it. I, I mean, I'm a sucker for a post-apocalyptic movie as much as the next person. And this was, I like this kind of down to earth kind of scale, but it's only three actors. Um in the course of the film, but it's, you know, the, the fact that, that it all takes place in this valley where uh, the fallout from a nuclear holocaust hasn't quite wiped out all life is, a, you know, is a very intriguing one. And, and all three cast members are, you know, using their skills and, and, and showing why they're so appealing as, as actors uh, to Allegio for Margot Robbie and Chris Pine. Uh, I, I really like the balance between them. They're all the three. I think the three very different actors in a lot of ways, but uh, in a way that works in the film's favor. So. I was very much 
very fond of that. Yeah, I really like that one. That's one I'd recommend. Obviously, Children of Men, Serenity, The Martian. He's probably best known for his starring role in 12 Years a Slave. Uh, that's where Chiwetel Ejiofor, I think he got an Academy Award nomination. Uh, of course, he was in Kinky Boots and Love Actually for those uh, seasonal movie fans. He's in that as well. And and um, Spike Lee's Inside Man. So, you know, he, he has a great, great career in the 21st century. And, uh, and I absolutely uh, look forward to seeing him in whatever else he's got uh, coming out. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's Chiwetel Ejiofor, and we have more actors that we want to to give a little love to coming up in a moment. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook, and today we are talking about some of our favorite actors, Karsten Knox and myself, that did not make the New York Times twenty five best actors of the 2000s list because how could you just limit yourself to 25 actors there's, <laughs> there's so much great talent out there and um you know we we definitely wanted to give some uh, credit to some of the other talents that we love to see in films and uh, on a regular basis almost without a fault even if the film isn't great these are people that we love to see light up the screen in whatever project they happen to show up in and uh my next choice is Mark Ruffalo, who uh, of late has probably been busiest in the Marvel Universe, uh, playing Bruce Banner and the Hulk, and and obviously the best portrayal of that character, either as a human or as a computer graphic construct. Um, they finally got the Hulk right uh, after two feature films. But, uh, but we're not here to talk about Marvel Universe, even though two of our previous actors are also part of that universe. <laughs> we can't deny it. We can't deny it. Chuetel Ejiofor is uh, part of the, uh, is Mordo in the Doctor Strange uh, storyline. And Kate Blanchett, of course, was um, death, I guess, <laughs> or the, the, the god of death in uh, the Thor movies. And uh, I can't remember the character's name, but that's okay. Oh, it was, not- I think, was it Hera? No, not Hera. Uh, anyway, so anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the Hulk is a lot easier to remember, but uh, but Mark Ruffalo is 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 uh, one of those guys you just like to see turn up. Uh, whether he's playing, you know, I mean, Bruce Banner is a doctor; he's a super intelligent guy. Or if he's just playing, you know, a likable, you know, rapscallion <laughs> kind of character. Or uh, you know, I, I loved seeing him as the as the cop. Uh, Tashi, Dave Tashi in uh, Zodiac, which we oh, talked yeah. about only last week. So, you know, he, he just has a knack for popping up in, in, in interesting projects, whether he's uh, ostensibly the star or it's a supporting role. And, uh, you know, I, he's, he's originally from Kenosha, Wisconsin. So I think maybe that Midwestern grounded thing is an actual thing for him that, that he's able to play these characters that are believable, uh, very well-rounded. Uh, and and very much uh, you know seem to be drawn from real life, uh, like the other actors as we mentioned, and we'll probably continue to mention. He does have a a, a very prestigious stage background, and uh, Carson and I both uh, agree that we probably first took note of him in You Can Count on Me in 2000. So he's right; he's just perfect for the 2000s actor um, when he he got his first real major uh, attention from the Kenneth Lonergan comedy drama um, You Can Count on Me about a, a sort of uh, a black sheep brother who comes back into the life of his sister, uh, who is a single mother and, uh, the joy and, uh, problems that, uh, that 
brings. Uh, so if you haven't seen You Can Count On Me, it's a lovely film. 20 years later, it still plays very well uh, with a wonderful cast. Laura Linney is terrific and a great Matthew Broderick role. But we're not talking about that film. I, I picked a couple of films. Once again, I decided to pick films that I had not watched. And one of them I felt a bit guilty about. And that's The Brothers Bloom, which is uh, directed by and written by Ryan Johnson, who, of course, uh, you know, has has received nothing but accolades for his recent uh, *Knives Out*, a wonderful sort of deconstruction of the Agatha Christie style uh, murder mystery. Uh, the Brothers Bloom is sort of similar. I mean, he, this came out after *Brick*, after he'd done his kind of high school film noir um, uh, drama *Brick*. The Brothers Bloom is is more of a lighthearted romp, if you will. It's a European caper film. It's Maybe it's uh, maybe it's like uh, Hudson Hawk. If Hudson Hawk <laughs> hadn't gone off the rails, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's a great comparison, Stephen. Because <laughs> uh, it's very much in that it's it's very much a lark in that sense, where uh, basically the two brothers Bloom are con artists who uh, set their sights on a uh, basically a millionaire heiress who is played by Rachel Vice, and they concoct this story about having to get this ancient text in uh i think in budapest i'm trying to remember they go to so many different locations and they're selling it to some wealthy argentinian at least that's the story they cook up um you know with the help of a a fellow sort of senior con artist played by robbie coltrane who's a real pleasure to see here and adam adrian brody who plays uh who plays bloom and then mark ruffalo is stephen bloom uh you know they're uh they're kind of partners in crime adrian brody is kind of the main character, especially as he gets more attracted to Rachel Vice, despite uh, Mark Ruffalo's uh, pleas not to fall for the mark. Don't fall in love as the first rule of, of being a proper con artist. And, uh, and they, they have a great relationship. Uh, Steven is the one who seems to be pulling uh, Bloom's fat out of the fire a whole lot um, over the course of the film as they careen to this improbable um, uh, conclusion. And it's, it's, it's not a film you have to think about. If you, the more you have to think about this plot they're concocting, the less you're going to enjoy it. It's best to just kind of let it wash over you. But, uh, but, but, you know, Ruffalo is charming, and he's he's you know he's kind of skilled and smart, but also he's good at playing kind of dumb at the same time. It's it's a very interesting performance. It's, you kind of wish there was more of him in the film. That that maybe he and and Adrian Brody's Bloom were a little better balanced. But uh, they're very good together. And Rachel Vice is very game for what goes on in this film. And also Rinko Kikuchi, who was previously in Babel plays their accomplice and maybe Steven's romantic partner. They kind of, they're kind of uh, cagey about it, but uh, bang, bang. And she's their explosive expert and kind of technical whiz. And uh, they make for a great team and it's just fun to watch them at work. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoyed watching this film again. I hadn't, I had seen it when it came out and I was kind of mixed about it. I was a big fan of brick. So when, Brothers Bloom came out. I found it a little bit of a letdown. Um, I like Ruffalo in the film the, because he's just so warm, and that's something that I really like about him in every role that he's in. Uh, he's he's got this uh, you could ha- this feeling he could hang out with him and have a beer, you know, that kind of casual friendliness about him. Um, but he's his role is a little underwritten, and I think you're right. I think it would have been nice to have he and uh, Adrian Brody's character, the brothers, have more to do together. But uh, you know, they. 
they have their the whole film given it's about con artists is stolen from them by rachel vice who is amazing yes. in the movie rachel vice could easily have been on our lists and we could have talked about her and her work she is incredible um she plays this heiress who likes to collect hobbies and drive lamborghinis well i should say wreck lamborghinis because she isn't very good at driving them um <laughs> It's uh, it's really a cool film, and it was fun to see Robbie Coltrane, as you said, basically playing Hercule Poirot. He's playing kind of, like yeah. a kind of a detective style character um, from Belgium, and uh, it's I, I like to describe the film kind of like Wes Anderson meets Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. There's a lot of charm, gorgeous locations, and a cast that is up for it. Um, I didn't find that the the ending. I thought the third act, I think, is where it gets let down a bit. I didn't. I didn't think the final twist. I think a good con artist movie, you need to be fooled by it, and I didn't necessarily feel like I was. But uh, this is still a lot of fun. And as you said, it's partly the performances and it's partly just the joie de vivre of the film. So, uh, so yeah, and, and you know, Ryan Johnson obviously went on to, to big. I mean, he went to Looper and then Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and most recently Knives Out, which might be his best film yet. Um, so, yeah, I think fans of Ryan Johnson uh, owe it them, to themselves to watch this. Yeah, he's, he said it was basically his tribute to uh, a combination of The Man Who Would Be King and The Sting, which are two of my all-time favorite films. So I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for that. Plus, Mark Ruffalo, who I've been told I resemble by one or two people, which is a weird thing when I'm, I guess, when he's got a beard, I suppose. Uh, and he's a Steven with a PH. You know, in this film, so I feel I feel very drawn to him in this film. Um, and the other film we watched, and we don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but it's Infinitely Polar Bear, directed and written by Maya Forbes, based on her own childhood experiences of growing up with a father who had bipolar syndrome. And uh, basically, uh, Mark Ruffalo plays her dad, Cam Stewart, and Zoe Saldana is wonderful as the mom, Maggie Stewart, who's trying to improve her life, go to go to university, get a business degree you know, improve the life of her kids by, you know, getting jobs and doing important things. Whereas uh, Cam Stewart, because he's bipolar, he has trouble functioning in the world, but you know, he has his good moments and his bad, bad moments. And he's trying to do the best he can as a dad. And it's, it's a very full on performance by Mark Ruffalo. Maybe it's a little different than some of the other ones he's done. Like, I think he's really burying himself in another character and you don't see so much of his own personality coming out in um, the character of cam but it, it is it is a a heartwarming and and uh you know i think well-researched performance of a man coping with bipolar and trying to be a, a normal adult while at semi simultaneously basically failing at it and it's, it's it's worth seeing i don't think it's i don't think it all holds together i think uh, and I think uh, you feel the same way, Carson, that that aspect yeah. don't work as well as it could. Yeah, I, I really like his performance in this. I really like Zoe Saldana, but I just found the whimsy and the tone worked against the portrait of a man who lives with bipolar disorder. It was a strange mix of that kind of lightness uh, and then and then this very serious subject matter. But uh, but yeah, again, for fans of Ruffalo who want to see his best performance, I think it's worth seeing. Um, I also wanted to highlight a few other films of his I would suggest people watch if they haven't. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 13 Going on 30. Obviously, you mentioned we mentioned Zodiac in last week on our discussion of David Fincher. But uh, The Kids Are All Right, Spotlight, he's great at oh, Spotlight. Yeah. And, and last year he was in a film by Todd Haynes that kind of came and went called Dark Waters, which is a procedural, a mystery, and it's 
really good. Um, it's one of those films that at the time I was like, I wasn't sure about, but it's really stayed in me, in my memory. And it's, it's, he's very strong in that. So, uh, so yeah, there's Mark Ruffalo. Absolutely. Good choice, Steven. Um, <laughs> now we need to move on. And, uh, I wanted to highlight the work of Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan is 35. She was born in London. Her first film was Pride and Prejudice in 2005, opposite Kira Knightley. Um, her breakout lead was in an education, and she's since been in Never Let Me Go, in Drive. She was incredible in Steve McQueen's Shame, off, opposite Michael Fassbender, and then worked with the Coen brothers in Inside Lewin Davis. And uh, she was also really good in a leading role in Far From the Madding Crowd, the recent, I guess, readaptation of that story. Um, Coming soon, she'll be in two films that have substantial late 2020 buzz, Promising Young Woman and The Dig, opposite Rafe Fiennes. Uh, now, she was in a film last year that I really loved, and I'm really glad to be able to talk about it, and that's Wildlife. It's actor Paul Dano's first film as a director. It's co-written by his romantic and creative partner, uh, actor Zoe Kazan. And it adapts a book by Richard Ford. It's a quiet but deeply felt drama about a family who moves to Montana in the early 1960s when the father, Jerry, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, is laid off at his job at a golf course. He's too prideful to take work that he feels is beneath him. And uh, his wife, Jeanette, played by Carrie Mulligan, must step up and find work. The story is largely told through the eyes of a 14-year-old son, Joe, played by Ed Oxenbold, who I think gives a great performance, though distractingly he doesn't look anything like either of his screen parents, which I found a little <laughs> distracting. But anyway, um, Wildlife is really a lovely film to see. It's a collection of widescreen exteriors and claustrophobic austere interiors with the weight of silence and solitude in characters' eyes. And uh, Jeanette, uh, you know, uh, this is one of those films that's really carried by uh, Carrie Mulligan's performance. She plays this character who uh, is brittle and is reasonable to start with, but then starts to come apart at the seams, showing classic signs of a mood disorder in a way that, you know, is just, it's really heartfelt and heartrending. Um I, I think at one point she says she's in the car with her son and she's listening to the radio and then, uh, a French speaking voice comes on the car radio and she goes, Oh, Canada, we live near Canada. My God, I can't stand Canada tonight. It's a dash of mordant humor in a tale that feels from moment to moment, like it's careening towards tragedy. Um, this is also a film that feels a precocious child who seems more emotionally together than the adults in the room, which is a, which is a, uh, sort of a cliche I find really problematic in a lot of movies, but this film is very much worth seeing. And that's largely due to Mulligan, whose presence is just, she, she's, it's hard to describe. She has an ineffable quality that I just, every time she comes on screen, whatever role, size of the role, I immediately kind of gravitate towards her. She's magnetic and uh, very good in wildlife. What did, what did you think of wildlife, Stephen? Yeah, I thought Wildlife was a remarkable film. Uh, it, it's it's amazing that uh, Paul, Paul Dano has clearly learned from the people that he's worked with over the years. And uh, you know, th there's a very real f feeling of this family coming apart at the seams uh, over the course of the film that, that uh, you know, Carrie Mulligan's uh, mom, Jeanette, is very, she becomes this kind of hard-edged realist while uh, Jerry, the husband played by uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, is is kind of this pie in the sky, 
dreamer. He's also kind of a he's he's a little more progressive than you'd expect from a dad in 1950s Montana. Although they did just move there from Idaho. Although I'm not sure what the difference there is. And uh, just just watching her trying to stay strong and resourceful while he's off fighting these fires and risking his life which you know she thinks is completely ridiculous for like next to no money um it, you know it, it's it's just a this this gradual hardening that she undergoes over the course of the film it, it's 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 such a great performance uh and uh you know and, and the relationship she has with the son is is very interesting as well she always speaks to him like an adult um she treats him like an adult even though he's he's really not he's a kid who needs some some guidance but uh you know, she she talks to him frankly about their marriage, the fact that they're not intimate. You know, she says, you know, the marriages in marriages, many either go crazy or it's a woman, and that's basically her philosophy of 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 married life. And and she feels like she's she's trapped in this nightmare. I feel like I need to wake up, but I don't know what from or to. You know, she's just so lost. And uh, and and then she begins this relationship with a car dealer, who weirdly enough, I was trying to spot or trying to sort of remember where I'd seen him. And he's, he's the, the janitor who teaches uh, uh, Anya chess in, um, <laughs> in the, the queen's gambit. It was weird. All, all these different connections, but, uh, but yeah, she, she's wonderful here. And I, I, I feel like it's even, even though it's very dramatic, what goes on in the course of the film, I, I feel like she does stay grounded um, through all the kind of machinations of the story. And, and um, you know, her her husband's going off the rails as well. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful film, and uh, it is really just the most recent uh, great performance from Mulligan, who uh, we should mention. I did mention, in fact, an education, um, which was her first, I think, real um, starring role. And she in it, she plays uh, Mulligan plays a sixteen year old. He's when she was actually like twenty three, I think, in pre Beatles suburban London, and she is. Uh, it's a film about. Uh, well, it's it's by D- a Danish dogma director Lona Scherfig, and uh, from a Nick Hornby script adapting a memoir by Lynn Barber, and it's a solid, classy, crowd pleasing film, um, and it's about a sixteen year old who is the cleverest one in her class, and she is a good grade in Latin away from going to Oxford for university, who meets an older man, David, played by Peter Sarsgaard, um, with a little more charm than smarm, but still kind of smarmy, who sweeps her off her feet, offering her nights out glamorous events and dinners and even trips to Paris. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a very ill-advised dalliance, but it's one of those moments where, I mean, the film is about a, a lead character who is so clever and he, she's smarter than most people in, her, in the room, but she has no experience, no emotional experience. So it's about that schism between brains and what you need to learn about life in order to make the right decisions. And um, it's a it's it's a really remarkable film. It's the kind of thing where obviously you know it, it's it's set sixty seventy years ago. So um, you know the 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 morals of the of the day were very different than they are now. But uh, it has uh, it, it's it's both wonderfully observed and slightly creepy. Uh, what did you make of an education, Stephen? Well, it's you know it it just felt very true to the period. Uh, I mean, Carrie Mulligan's portrayal of Jenny is completely heartbreaking because uh, she's she's feels stifled in her home, uh, you know, with her father who's always putting these kind of limitations on her, um, you know, and she's she's you know feels bad about disappointing her her teacher and her um, 
headmistress played by Emma Thompson, the teacher played by Olivia Williams uh, from um, Rushmore and elsewhere, a, a wonderful actor. And in fact, it's so well cast all across the board. And Rosamund Pike is kind of the, the glamorous society girl who takes her under her wing a little bit. There's there's some some great moments between them as well. And, and you know, just that, that feel of her feeling lost and looking for some direction. She knows what she wants to do, but at the same time, she's got a lot of growing up to do. And I, I, I like the balance between it all over the course of the film. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So today on Lens Me Your Ears, we're talking about actors, specifically actors inspired by an article in the New York Times about the 25 greatest actors of the 21st century so far. And uh, we've decided to add to that list with our own picks of actors we believe are deserving to be on that list or our own modified version of that list. And uh, I, I couldn't n- not talk about this guy. Um, you know, the, one of the saddest um, realities of, of life, of course, is that uh, not everyone is going to grow into a ripe old age. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is an actor who I absolutely adored. And he died age 46 in February 2014. And I just think that uh, even though we've been not denied great work from him for the past, you know, five, six years, um, he did so much with the time that he had. And especially in the, I mean, he, he worked through the 90s as well, but but since the dawn of the 21st century, he's done, he did great, great work. Uh, he was born in a suburb of Rochester, New York. Um, he started in theater. He became a noted character actor from the 1990s. In 2000 um, and up, he was in films as varied as Punch Drunk Love, Mission Impossible 3, Capote, uh, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Actor and uh, The Savages, and Synecdoche, New York, which he was the lead as well, a deeply weird, uh, wonderful, uh, troubling film. Um, what I always liked about Hoffman is that he, his fearlessness to play deeply unhappy people, uh, sometimes deeply unpleasant people, and he made them entirely human. He allowed us to see uh, human weakness in a way that I think most people can relate to, um, sometimes hard to see because we don't necessarily always want to look at ourselves and see those those weaknesses in ourselves. But he was fearless in how he showed them, and uh, he showed us that side of ourselves, and uh, that was uh, one of his remarkable gifts. Anyway, so I would say that maybe my favorite film that he was in was almost famous, and that's the. Uh, Cameron Crowe's lovely semi-autobiographical movie about a teenage journalist in the 1970s who goes on tour with a mid-level rock band called Stillwater. Uh, Hoffman played Lester Bangs, the real-life rock journalist, rock critic, uh, legend, a legend in his own mind and life, um, <laughs> who worked for uh, you know multiple magazines in the 70s. Um, uh, it, that film made Kate Hudson a star, and it gave great roles to almost everyone in the cast. It's a real joy to watch. Hoffman's a highlight. 
he just brought something special to that part. Um, but I also wanted to talk about The Master, uh, which is Paul Thomas Anderson. I don't think we've had a Paul Thomas Anderson episode yet, Stephen. But, we have um, not. But, you know, we have talked about uh, Phantom Thread, and I'm sure we'll talk about many of his films over, you know, our, our time here doing this podcast. But The Master we haven't talked about. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's also a film of Philip Seymour Hoffman's that's very much worth mentioning. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe I'll hand it over to you if you want to say a few things about The Master, Stephen. Oh, yeah, I, I am besotted with this film. And it's funny how it's kind of fallen by the wayside, I guess, in some degree, to some degree as a Paul Thomas Anderson film, it, it's, it's maybe not as revered as, as, uh, things like, like Boogie Nights and, and Magnolia and there will be blood. And yeah, you know, I, I kind of like his outliers, like inherent vice, which is a film that was, I think got a very mixed reaction <laughs> at the time that came out. And I, I just enjoyed it for the kind of weird romp. It was, it's maybe an atypical film for Paul Thomas Anderson, but then it's hard to say what a typical film for him is, uh, at this, you know, at this point in his career, he does like to, to go on these little detours from time to time and the, the master was just a fascinating film uh this basically fictionalized take on the early days of of scientology and um you know uh there's, there's a famous story that apparently he screened it for uh, tom cruise who's uh i guess he's still on good terms with but uh uh cruise was not very happy about it apparently which is not uh, not a big surprise even though it's fictionalized and it, it's it's clearly it's clearly meant to be the life of L. Ron Hubbard. And uh, in this case, uh, the fictionalized version uh, uh, is played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, uh, you know, as, as the master, as the man who's kind of running this, uh, it hasn't quite become a cult, but you can see it heading that way. It's called the cause. And he's kind of directing it from this boat. So, so Lancaster Dodd, the character played by Hoffman, he describes himself as as a multi-talent. He's a he's a doctor. He's a he's a physicist. He's a philosopher. He's a right. You know, um, you know. He he certainly has this very uh, big opinion of himself, and he's got the intelligence to kind of back it up, even though he's basically just kind of creating this world around him on a lark. Uh, he's a man of mystery and manipulation. Um, you know, and as one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's greatest strengths is to portray that kind of intelligence and uh into his world comes this force of nature freddie quell played by joaquin phoenix who's a uh an ex uh it's, it's just after the second world war he's uh out of the I, I can't remember if he's out of the navy or the merchant marine but he's he suffered some trauma through the war he's coping with that and the clash between i mean two very different acting styles for one thing between joaquin phoenix and philip seymour hoffman hoffman has this kind of controlled uh kind of force and Joaquin Phoenix is more of a more of a tornado basically and it's it's this war between the 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 ego and the id basically uh portrayed on screen and it's it's just a fascinating battle of wills between these two actors um you know as as this the cause kind of moves towards its its goal of uh of recruiting the smartest and uh at the same time, most uh, susceptible to this uh, new movement. Yeah, I, I'm with you on their performances. I think that it's a remarkable meeting. And, and we sort of see the cause through the eyes of the Phoenix character, who is clearly very troubled. We meet him first. And as he, he goes from being a, a, 
uh, seaman in in the war to a kind of itinerant life, uh, you know, where he's struggling with his emotions and and drinking way too much of his own weird moonshine. Um, but it, once he meets uh, the master, once he meets Lancaster Dodd, he does he gives uh, he, who gives him a, a path, a, a a mission. That's when this film uh, the, that their key their relationship is the key one, and uh, uh, even with. Um, also, the terrific Amy Adams is is in this. She's wonderful in the film. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a difficult film for me to love. And uh, I, although I love Hoffman in it, I love the performances. But but I just find I found myself asking, what are we? Re- what's this really about? What are we really getting out of the film? And I I guess I struggled with its with it thematically. Um, I, you know I. Maybe I'm just a bit of a sentimentalist at the end of the day where I, I want some kind of sense of redemption or understanding, and I don't know that we we get that. I don't know that, that that's where it's going. Um, but uh, it is an interesting journey. It's a, it's a weird and difficult one in many places as well. Uh, you know, it's a... Uh, it's, it's a weird codependency. It's interesting to see behind the curtain of this cult led by this brilliant, manipulative man who won't abide criticism. Uh, but someone who definitely needs to be adored, and that is something he gets from Freddie Quell, from uh, Joaquin Phoenix' character. I, I really like this film. I like its weird deconstruction of the Scientology movement or the early days of the movement, and and trying to spot which moments are kind of true to what happened and which are part of his own uh, fancy and imagination. I, I feel like uh, Anderson's interest in the character of Dodd is the same as it was with Daniel Plainview and there will be blood. I, you know, he, he's, he's just taken by these megalomaniac characters, I guess. (laughs) And, uh, but, but it's interesting that we see him, uh, through the eyes of Freddie Quell, that it's, it's, it's not a straight on port. It's more like a sideways prismatic portrait of a very complex character through the eyes of another very complex and troubled character. And, mm. and I, I gather, I, I feel like there's probably like another hour's worth of footage from this movie that I, I, I feel like uh, there's the, the, the some extras on the Blu-ray where they create these kind of mini movies out of footage that didn't make it into the final film. And I, I feel like there could be another film using footage that could come out of this. It, you know, you never know, but uh, that's, uh, but that's, the way of Paul Thomas Anderson with his sprawling epics. Eventually, a lot of that yeah. gets left by the, the wayside. Yeah. So anyway, I was, I'm also just glad to be able to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman as an actor who's deeply missed um, and, uh, and should be on any list of the great actors of the 21st century. Um, now, we have one more uh, that uh, you chose, Stephen, uh, that I heartily uh, support. And uh, do you want to talk about Michael Stuhlbarg? Yeah, we kind of... I remember the conversation we were trying to think of, of other actors that we could talk about. And this kind of popped into our heads almost simultaneously. I, you know, I was thinking about just recent movies that I loved and, and uh, a serious man, again, sort of like uh, the master. It's not the Coen brothers film that people tend to return to or talk about in a great deal, but uh, it is such a great look at this kind of suburban uh, Minnesotan, uh, late '60s Jewish community, and and this one man who's kind of surrounded by this community who leans on the community, but also is feels impinged on it. And it, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, again another actor with a, a lot of stage cred, and uh, who was probably first 
really uh, brought to public attention by his his role in Boardwalk Empire uh, as the uh, Arnold Rothstein, the great uh, the great uh, mastermind of, of organized crime in the, the 1920s. And he's so good in that film in, in that sorry that that HBO series. I, the, my favorite line in the whole series is one of his where he says the majority of the troubles of the world are caused by man's inability to sit quietly in a room by himself. And <laughs> that, that is my takeaway from boardwalk empire. But, uh, but Michael Stuhlbarg, just, uh, he's, he's able to play such a wide range of characters without really having to alter his personality so much. I, I find that he's, um, you know, he can play, he can play a villain or he could play uh, an everyman or he could play a super genius or whatever. I, I find like he just has that kind of laser intensity um, for every performance. And a serious man, it, it's, he was basically kind of plucked out of obscurity. Uh, he'd had some, you know, a few minor roles here and there, a couple of Law and Orders and that kind of thing. But really nothing, uh, nothing uh, super major to his credit, but the Coen brothers spotted him you know, possibly on stage or possibly in, in uh, a price of above rubies, his first film role, which was like from almost a decade before. And he plays Larry Gopnik, this, this husband whose whole world is falling apart. He's a, he's, he's a smart man. He's a likable man. He's uh, uh he's a, a university professor who's worried about getting his tenure and, and yet everything is going wrong. I feel like it's, it's basically a suburban version of the book of Job from the old testament and uh, that's that's basically how it goes it's just his, his wife leaves him for a, a real schnook um, and and everybody agrees that that is the case and he's dealing with a um a son who's you know who's basically you know trying to get that 20 bucks to pay back a local drug dealer and going through all these schemes and all this stuff is happening behind his back he doesn't even really understand why all this stuff is happening and just the level of incredulity and sympathy he brings to the role of Larry Gopnik is, is, is a reason why I can return to this film year after year. Yeah, I hadn't seen it since it first came out. So I was really glad to see it again. And I loved it this time. I liked it the last time. But second time around, I think I really enjoyed it that much more. Uh, I loved its sort of very Jewish uh, droll comedy. This very sort of matter of fact, um, you know, irony about the, the it's about a man struggling with with all these things as you say that are happening to him and then he tries to find answers in his faith and faith and what's funny is that his church is his uh, the synagogue the the rabbis really don't give him much that helps uh, and that's where a lot of the humor comes from um and uh i loved uh that uh you know, this sort of a study of mundanity that's actually a search for truth and for depth. Uh, watching it again, it feels like Larry Gopnik, the uh, the Michael Stuhlball character, is kind of a schmo. He lacks much of a backbone. He's He just is unable to manage any kind of, of, of upheaval in his life. And, uh, and that, uh, I love the, the dentist parable. Oh, that's such a um, great scene. And the 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 guy with his message in the teeth that's all set to Jimi Hendrix's machine gun. Like there is some really interesting stuff here. The Coens, of course, at this point in their career, incredibly confident. I mean, they've always been confident, but twenty plus years after their first film, twenty five years after their first film, they deliver something that is is full of memorable lines. Um, you know, including 
even though you can't figure anything out, you'll still be responsible for it on the midterm. <laughs> and, and his argument with the guy over the phone from Columbia House, I don't want Santana Abraxas. I don't need, I didn't ask for Santana Abraxas. <laughs> that just kills me. Um, you know, but the end of the day, Hashem doesn't owe us the answer. And uh, it's about the, you know, the, the random, the arbitrary nature of the universe and that we just have to go along with it. Um, and in that way, uh, it, it is a pretty wonderful, interesting film with, a, with something to say in its, with its tongue firmly planted in cheek. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to like in this film. I feel like the Coen brothers are getting out a lot of their childhood reminiscences in this film i i feel like it's a real personal film for them which isn't necessarily always the case with, with them uh and uh one of the criticisms I, I sometimes hear leveled at them is that uh i heard somebody say that i don't think the coen brothers like their characters very much but i think they do like even larry gopnik even though they're heaping one indignity after another upon him i, I think they do have some sympathy for him and i you know the choice of michael Sulberg, he's a, he's a, just a sympathetic actor like i think he brings a lot to the role that uh, uh another actor might not have uh, not might not have brought and he's uh, he's he's thoroughly believable but you're right he does he, he he does he does need to grow a bit of a backbone and but the, they don't uh, they dangle that carrot in front of us but i don't think we really ever get that satisfaction uh, as you would in a traditional comedy no i i, I think you're right um now i did want to highlight a few other films that he's in lincoln hitchcock blue jasmine pawn sacrifice uh trumbo he's in arrival and and he's great in call me by your name which is maybe my favorite film that he appears in and he's in the shape of water and this year he's in something called shirley opposite elizabeth moss that i really would recommend he plays a lot of academics and he's very good as that I, um steven i don't know i don't we don't have a lot of time left and i don't know if you want to mention pawn sacrifice the uh, edward zwick picture that he's uh, he's in also written co-written by stephen knight who uh wrote uh, one of the first films we talked about on this episode, uh, going back to Dirty Pretty Things. Pawn Sacrifice, I'll, basically he plays Paul Marshall, who's the manager slash lawyer for Bobby Fischer, the manic chess genius played by Tobey Maguire, who's really the focus of the film. So if you still got chess fever from The Queen's Gambit, you might want to watch Pawn Sacrifice since a lot of what was in the true life story of uh, Bobby Fischer and his uh, rivalry with Russian champion Boris Spassky, a lot of that uh, inspired the novel that eventually inspired the Queen's Gambit. And and here he's he's basically this this guy who's a he's he's Fisher's protector and enabler. He has to go along to get along with him basically as he makes these increasingly off the wall demands and he realizes he's bitten more than he can chew handling this guy who's clearly a genius but also very troubled but because he has some means and 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 talent uh, he's never going to get the help that he needs because he's, you know, he's fully convinced that he's always right. So uh, I, I definitely recommend Pawn Sacrifice. Uh, apparently, uh, at one point, David Fincher was interested in this script and, and eventually uh, it went to Edward Zwick, the director of Glory and some other uh, sort of big Hollywood films. But but uh, again, Paul Marshall, he's, he's, he's kind of a minor character, but he's part of Fincher's entourage and, and, and he has this thankless role, not Stuhlberg, but the character has this thankless task of trying to keep Fisher in line, which is virtually impossible. And watching him go through the motions to try and make that happen is, is a big part of the why the film works.
you so much for listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. We very much enjoyed uh, talking about actors. A uh, little bit of a detour, but not so much a detour for us. Uh, any chance we have to, to talk about movies at all, this is why we do what we do. And uh, we hope that uh, you've enjoyed it. Um, if you feel like reaching out to us, we have a, a Facebook page. Uh, we are also on Twitter on Lens Me Your Ears, and Stephen and I both have our own Twitter handle. Stephen, what's yours? At NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And my Twitter handle, I'm named after my uh, my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. Um, I want to say many, many thanks to CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax for the studio facilities when they are available and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And thanks to our producers at the Village South Podcast Network for all that you do. Uh, thanks again, listeners, for tuning in and for making us your podcast and radio choice. And uh, we'll talk about movies again very soon. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.